The views and opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the view of Wolfpack Research or any of its officers. The views and opinions expressed by guests are their own and their appearance on this program does not imply an endorsement of them or any entity they represent. We are not investment advisors. We hold no registrations with the SEC, FINRA, or any other regulatory agency, and none of the opinions expressed on this podcast should be considered investment advice. Listeners should assume that we have positions in and stand to benefit from any stock or other security mentioned on this podcast. Do your own research before making investment decisions. Hello, welcome to the Wolf Den. I'm Dan David. This is the I Hung Up on Warren Buffett podcast. Thanks for joining us today. We have a very interesting interview guest, John Carnes of Alfred Little fame. This goes back to the China fraud days. John is one of the first movers in exposing China fraud, and we find out how that happened. Basically, John living in China and prior to exposing these frauds, doing some of these pipe deals on the long side, bringing these companies here and coming to the revelation that this isn't just a, a difference in culture. This is fraud. It's a, it's a pretty interesting conversation. I've known John for, oh, you know, over 10 years now, and we've, we've had an occasion to work together. He is an extremely intelligent guy. Uh, and unlike most short sellers that I know, very understated, uh, very humble. Uh, it's hard to get some of the most interesting stories out of him because he doesn't find them interesting, but I think you and I will find them wildly interesting. Uh, one for me was that he was originally one of E-Trade's biggest customers, uh, affecting their earnings once he became a customer. He was you know, a scholarship student, and in his last year, he was making so much money day trading in the uh, mid-90s that he uh, attempted to quit college, but they wouldn't They wouldn't let him. They gave him a degree anyway. I thought that was wild. What about you guys? What say you, Matt? Do you, th- you see anything in that uh, interview you thought was interesting? Yeah, I mean, I had the opportunity to, to hang out with you guys back around 2012, 2013, when a lot of the China fraud stuff was really, really going down. It wasn't necessarily that it was starting then, but you guys were really in the meat of it. And I got to know John back then, and I, I've always thought he was a really fascinating individual. Uh, as you say, he, his personality is uh, very reserved, very laid back. And, yeah, he's definitely not someone who would typically talk about himself, yet he is someone who has had a, a, a pretty interesting and pretty fascinating life, um, especially when it comes to, you know, exposing some of these China frauds and how he went about it. He put himself in a lot of danger. He put his crew in a lot of danger. And I think you hear that in this conversation. I think you hear some of the, the, the like pain, pain that he still, the emotion, yeah, yeah. yeah it's, it's that clear. he still has and, and that he still has a desire to get him and his crew uh, back to China because he actually has, you know, such a deep love for the country. And for the people. Yeah. What about you, Carl? What do you think? Well, well, John will always hold a special place in my heart for, for the cure. And the we get cure. The cure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. For those listening, if you listen uh, to the entire podcast, part of it will be us giving you a recipe that cures a hangover. Uh, who knew John owned a pharmacy at one time? <laughs> so there are four or five over-the-counter drugs that that you take and... Worst hangover in the world has been cured. That's worked for 
all of our friends. We all carry it around to this day. And it's just one of those funny stories that comes out about John, right? So unassuming and just kind of like a, it just drops right out. That's a pretty deep story once we get into it. And just another interesting part of who John Carnes is. Um, I find it fascinating. I hope you guys will find it fascinating. It's the infamous, famous, all-star John Carnes, Alfred Little. Do you have any other names you're known by, John? Uh, my middle name, Richard. That's what my oh. parents call me. Okay. You're an exciting fella, John. You really are. <laughs> All right, John, we're uh, joined with Matico. You know Tick, right, from back in the day? Yeah. And we've got Carl over here, our sound engineer. God help us. Uh, and Reed, have you ever met Reed? I, I don't think so, no. Yeah, this John, That's this it. is Reed Sherman. We call him Tank Sherman. Yeah, all right. He nice just blows. Name. Pleasure he, to meet you, John. He blows shit up. <laughs> <laughs> so, like, John, I, I wanted to talk to you about what you're doing now, what's going on, and then maybe get into a little bit about, you know, who is John Carnes and the history and the legend of Alfred Little. Uh, but where are you at right now, John? What are you doing? What have you been doing the last couple of years? I really haven't been keeping track of you. Uh, a lot of trading. Um micro cap nano cap and uh whenever the market gets uh, volatile i trade a lot of futures s p futures so, so last few days it's all futures so you're you're trading now you're just day trading right so you're like davy day trader <laughs> quiet yeah no, don't tweet don't have any following uh-huh and you know what you're doing mostly so, day trading and you're day trading micro caps and nano caps Wow. So you stay staying away from any of the mid or large caps. Haven't figured those out yet. Yeah, I don't believe that. I just think you could you could figure the the micros and the nannies and they move a little faster. Well is the are you looking at the micro and nano caps because you think there's value there? Yeah, and un unfortunately I'm still addicted to value. And so yeah, I'd like to buy nano cap stocks when they're down cheap and sell them when they bounce up a little bit it's not particularly profitable um but uh you know it's what i'm good at doing but then when the market gets volatile when the market gets volatile what i've discovered is the market no longer cares about nano cap so i just sell them all and trade futures until it cools down again interesting have you been having a good year it's just an ordinary average hanging in there Right. Most so years are average. Yeah, so you're just making millions, that's all. Right, okay. I wish. Okay. Uh, and, you know, people should know, getting into the history of John Carnes now, be, prior to Alfred Little, before Alfred Little existed, there was John Carnes, the college kid day trader. Now, John, you started day trading in college in what, the early 90s? Yeah, 92. And 92. And you were going to the University of South Carolina? That's right. So you were a Gamecock. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Did you ever have one of those hats that said cock on it? No. I no. would never wear that. <laughs> but people did. People did. Do. Yeah. They still do, don't they? Yeah. yeah. Or oh, they say cocks. Yeah. Cocks. Go cocks. Yeah. Wow. It's, wow. Not, it's not offensive yet? Not in South no. Carolina. I don't know that much is. 
So you started day trading in um, in college, what around your sophomore junior year? Yeah, I started out pre med, and then I had to take an econ class, and the econ professor uh, was one of these efficient market guys they had back ah. then. And uh, you know, you can't make money. Warren Buffett's a lucky, lucky guy, and I thought that's nuts. Surely, if you're smart in in the top one percent, you can outperform the market, not just luck. And that kind of got me to do my own uh, side investigation into investing and trading, particularly in trading, where I thought there would be an edge. What, and, was uh, it? To, yeah. Was it to prove that professor wrong, or or was absolutely? It... I was determined to prove the econ professor wrong. Yeah. Yeah. You know, the amazing thing is, they still today teach the efficient market hypothesis as if it has any you know semblance of reality today. Even after John Carnes proved them wrong in 1992. <laughs> yeah. That's yeah, crazy. I mean, they might have dropped, they might be dropping it this semester or something, you know, after the last few months. But right. yeah, they still teach that. So what were you trading on, John? You uh, you just opened up a, what, an E-Trade account or what kind of account did you open up? Uh, back then, the firm was called Brown & Company. I don't yeah. know if they're still around. Um, they had a, Telephone system, you could dial in and enter orders wow. using the keypad, old school. Wow. No kidding. Yeah. And then that... and then eventually they got a like a, a old mode, you know, old fashioned modem connection with and you could enter orders using text through the computer. <laughs> Cutting wow. edge. That's crazy. That is so inefficient. And how long were you with them, Brown and Company? Until I got kicked out. Which was oh, like oh. Uh, ninety. Tell us more. Ninety-six. Well, ninety-six things are going really good and uh, doing huge volume. And Brown Company just decided that I'd gotten too big for them. It was too much of their order flow, and it was pissing off their market maker. If you remember back in the day, all orders got Robin Hooded. Everything got sent out to a market maker, and if you were making money, the market maker was probably losing money. Right. And so after like the uh was it night capital markets complained enough they did and uh brown and company said no more business with Carnes. <laughs> and this was in the day of fractional trading right so you were trading in fractions that's right and that's where you'd really make the money right it was a, it, very lucrative back then um but so yeah the market maker was taking a beating and it's like a casino right if somebody's counting cards and winning the casino wants to take you to dinner and eventually kick you out. So that's what happened at Brown and company. What did you open the account with? How much was the initial investment and what, what were you at when they kicked you out? Well, it's 3000 back in 1992. And I think when I left Brown and company, maybe it was a million or so, a little over a million. In three years from $3,000. 3000. The history of it was 3,092. I borrowed on, I was stupid and borrowed money from relatives, um, lost their money, made it back, lost it again. There's maybe the, the maximum capital. It was about 50,000 that I started out with those first few money losing years. And then, uh, then it took off in around 90 middle of 94. The two years of misery where I thought efficient markets rule. <laughs> I think I'm, I'm in, I'm, I think I'm still in those years of misery. 
So a million bucks. So you're working with a million bucks in 1996. And that was just too much for Brown and company to handle. And they were, and everybody was smaller back then. And it was, a, you know, a lot of trades. So how many Maybe trades, how many trades are you talking accounts, about a day? Seven accounts um, with them and maybe two, 300 trades a day in 96 wow. by telephone, but it was the losses that the market maker was experiencing. You know? Right. And then, so, so then you went to E-Trade, right? That's right. right. E-Trade welcomed my business and opened up at E-Trade. And, uh, and that's my first, uh, experience with long-term investing, investing, not trading, because after the big trading volume was moved from uh, Brown to E-Trade, a few months later, E-Trade pre-announced its quarterly earnings and said that their uh, trading volume had surged uh, 50%. <laughs> and, and was that uh, all you? Yeah. Well, a lot of it was me and the stock doubled. And I thought, hmm, we should have bought E-Trade stock. We should have <laughs> bought E-Trade stock and I started thinking about long-term, long-term investing. Did your volume of trades move up? Were you still doing two, 300 a day or was it? No, oh, we kept getting bigger and bigger. Yeah. So but that, I, I mean, by that time I had clerks in, you know, 20, 15, 20 accounts. Now I understand that during this time you were E-Trade's biggest customer. Is that true? I don't know that they would ever say exactly who is the biggest, but we were probably the one of the very biggest. Okay. Well, enough so that how many Super Bowls did they send you to? Three or four. I think three. I actually went to two. Yeah. <laughs> so you got tickets to three or four Super Bowls and you and you only went to two. What'd yeah, you do with the what did you do with the tickets to the other trading ones? Time. <laughs> That's a the Super Bowls is, you know, you're missing out on a lot of trades if you go to the Super Bowl. But it was fun. I mean, once is great, twice is cool, and three or four times let somebody else go. They had a lot right. of traders, you know, that they could send. And then uh, oh, they also put me in commercials for a little while. Really? fun. Oh, we have to find that. Yeah. Oh, do you have, Are do those you have any, on YouTube anywhere? Yeah. Do you have any tapes of that stuff? I had an old VHS tape of it that I never digitized or maybe it's digitized somewhere i'll try to find it but uh, what was, yeah they what did was the commercial, commercial like was it like be like johnny g yeah wow. they wanted their power trade customers to trade a lot so they came to my office in, in santa barbara and we had maybe six clerks back then and maybe 40 monitors in a little you know small trading floor and so they filmed the trading floor and then while they were filming, you know, once a week, I actually had this massage therapist come in and, and give the staff massages while we were, were trading. So E-Trade thought that up, was John. awesome. Yeah, they thought uh, this is amazing. These guys are getting massaged while they're trading, and they filmed it, and they made a commercial out of it. And the commercials like Power E-Trade, this, that, and the other. Look what you can do, Power E-Trade. You know, be, make all this money, be like John. And then... They have this, they flip to this picture of us at our trading terminals and the uh, girls massaging one of my colleagues and E-Trade has this little fine print at the bottom of the screen, power E-Trade, costs this much money, that much money, here's all benefits, and the little star says massage not included. Huh. Wow. 
Wow, that is way cool. So, so this is this is circa 1996 to like 1999, 2000. That's right. Okay. Yeah. Backing up before that, so you became Brown and Company's biggest customer. So much so they fired you, uh, and then you went to E Trade. How did you get there? What I mean, what did you do prior to that? You were you grew up in South Carolina. Yeah. I'm 20, 21 years in South Carolina. Right. And you, uh, how did you decide to go to, how, what, what, what was the town's name? Lancaster. Uh-huh. Pronounced Lancaster. It's pronounced Lancaster. Lancaster. Okay. So how did you choose South Carolina as a, as a school? How did I you, was, how did, did you always want to be a cock? <laughs> no, no, I, I, uh, was applied to, few schools from um, hmm. some, some like a rice university emory university and university of south carolina but what it came down to was uh south carolina state at a scholarship anyone who's made a perfect sat score could go to usc for free and so now, when it came down to it that that was the deciding factor free now i think I, i've heard the story you know i've heard the story but i i love the story and how unassuming it came out one day after I'd known, I mean, as, as most stories with you do come out very unassuming and they're just like amazing Herculean kind of effort stories. Uh, you did not grow up with uh, a great amount of money. Um, maybe not poor, but not enough to where, you know, the family paying for college was something that was going to happen. You were going to have to get that done on your own, right? Yeah. Okay. And what you understood from being in South Carolina is that if you aced your SAT either on either side of math or verbal, you would get a full ride to a state school like South Carolina, correct? That's right. Any public school in the state. If you could make an 800 verbal or an 800 math, you could get, have your tuition comp. So, so what, did you, what did you do when you, when, you, when, you, when you heard that information and you figured that was your path, what did you do? I thought that shouldn't be very hard. Study the math, SAT, and, uh, you know, ace the math. A lot of people ace the math, right? Right. Okay. And that's what you did. You studied for years going into this so that you would ace the math. Yeah. And I I studied the verbal team because I wanted to have a good overall high score. Right. Get into top school. Now, how did you feel? Because my grades in high school were just kind of okay, you know. I see. I graduated, you know, maybe like 11th out of 300. So, so I needed a high score. 11th out of 300, and that's just okay. It's okay. not going to well from from Lancaster, South Carolina. It's not going to get you into a good school like like Rice or Harvard, right? So. All right. So how did you feel that after you took the SATs, leaving that the SAT testing? Tell me what you were feeling. Well, I didn't finish the math section, so I knew I didn't have a perfect score. I had two questions left. You had so two left. questions left. So, so you, yeah. <laughs> I left completely dejected. I knew I'd have a high overall score, but it's no no eight hundred, no ace. Too bad. Wow. And and what happened when you got your scores? I uh, had a perfect verbal score. <laughs> <laughs> Unfucking believable. So, eight hundred on the verbal, seven sixty. On the math? 750, yep. Wow. And 
that gives you a full ride to South Carolina. And I have to tell you guys, it's just like, you know, I, I had known John a couple of years and, you know, we're, we're having some drinks. John turned me on to the bourbon. Uh, and uh, that story just comes out as, as a matter of fact. Hey, I, you know, I, I took the SATs. I didn't think I was going to get to go to college. And, uh, and this is why I studied so hard for, for math. I didn't finish the last couple of questions. And then it turns out I got a perfect score in verbal. Like, that tells you, you know, where this guy is is playing with the brain power. And well, I studied a lot, and I and I even other kids that studied a lot did well too. But the last little to get, you know, on those kind of tests, though, to get from seven hundred and thirty to eight hundred was a lot of studying. Right. And uh, we had a game. Bill Kenny and I, my high school best friend had a game of trying to like memorize every word in the dictionary. Cause if you more, if you knew every word in the dictionary, you could probably ace the verbal. And it was, oh, it was a game, uh, a game that nerdy guys like us did in high school. And yeah. I, I played worked. different games in high school. Well, uh, did, did <laughs> and we you... were in the band and, uh, you know, lifted a lot of weights. I was the biggest Dan at one point. Really? Really? Wow. <laughs> That's so. So you lifted a lot of weights. You were in a band, and you played strip dictionary with Bill Kenny. <laughs> yeah, something like that. <laughs> and that's how you got to college. And that's how you got to college. Well, you know what? Hey, don't knock it till you try it. I guess. So tell us about college. Like you, you have a story about your last semester of college, and meeting with the dean. You know, once I started trading stocks, I just lost all interest in college, and my grades went from 4.0 to all all failures every class by my senior year. I didn't go to class anymore. What um, What year was that? 94. Okay, so that's so fall that's of 94. I was failing everything, and I went to the dean and said, "I'm going to drop out. I'm too busy with stocks. The market's soaring right now, and the market, and you know, maybe I'll finish later. Maybe I won't." And the dean, of course, said, you're a scholarship student. That's not acceptable. We paid all this money for you. You've got to graduate. Then I said, well, I, I can't. I don't have enough credits. I don't, I don't have the right classes. In college, I've kind of just taken whatever I wanted to, especially classes I thought would be helpful to trading and investing. I don't have a degree. Look at all these weird courses I've taken. And the dean looked at it, and he said, we're going to call it business economics. And you have 120 hours, and that's the absolute minimum to graduate. I'm going to give you give you the degree. And I said, "Great, I'll take it. Thank you very much." Wow. And graduated in in December, so like a half. I graduated a semester early. Wow. My meetings with the dean went a lot different. <laughs> a lot different, right? In case you didn't know. Just based off what you said earlier, between 94 and 96, you made approximately 660% annualized returns. Yeah, those were the days. <laughs> and actually, starting off with your 92, $3,000 to uh, what you had in 96, that's about 6,667% annualized returns. Even yeah, I should start a newsletter. I should have started a newsletter. Yeah. Only politicians get the kind of, that rate of return. Actually, no. When you generate that kind of return, you don't have to start a newsletter because <laughs> you're making so much money. 
Why would you waste the well, time? L- let me tell you about my experience with uh, clients and customers. One time, well, well, I, I made friends with a lot of brokers. And brokers said, you got to have a fancy suit and a fancy car, and you can raise money from people and invest their money, you know, and get a lot bigger than you are now. And I thought, that's a good idea. I bought the suit and I bought a car. And what, was the, a, what was the car? It's just a Chrysler. I was cheapskate. The tra- Chrysler LHS. That's the Remember fancy that? car. Yeah, it was fancy enough for South Carolina. And it, I mean, I went and met a doctor and he gave me $200,000 to invest. And um, I invested his money under the terms, just to, like a carry, you know, give me, cover my fees and I'll take 25% of the profits. And at the end of the first month, we were up, I think 3% and the market that month, it was like a December 2006 or so was up four uh, percent and he was furious you, know, you underperformed the market you're a trader you should be outperforming and i said you know what i said if i can make three percent every month you know we'll you're, you're going to do great but if you complain i'm not interested and i gave him his money back and that was the last customer i ever had the last client wonder yeah. where, wonder where he put his money in uh late 06 after you fired him he gave it back to one of my broker friends and they you know i don't know whatever they like lost money broke Bear you know, Stearns, lagged the market brothers. even more <laughs> weren't you in china in 2006 oh i made a mistake i meant 1996 i'm so oh, sorry different so that was yeah, in 96 you, when you 1996 when, when i bought the car the... and the suit and had my one client one and only right okay all right, so you went from there uh, and you became E-Trade's biggest customer or one of their biggest customers. You you made millions. You were a millionaire before you were 30, obviously, probably before you were 25, really. And what took you to China? I'd really got addicted to value investing at that point. And I uh, r- ran into a f- fund called Barron Partners in New York that were specialized in nano cap uh value investing and what um, year was particularly this? particularly 2001 so you um, ran in you 2002 ran into, 2002 2002 you ran into baron partners that's andrew warden right that's right and what happened there i was introduced by a friend who kept telling me that there's this kid in new york named andrew and he's a genius and he's making so much money and I said, I'm not interested in the kid, you know, talk to me later. And they kept saying, oh, he's so good. He's so good. So finally, Andrew wanted to meet me, flew out to Las Vegas. And when I saw him, I realized he's not a kid. He's older than I am. And he's, and he's a master of value investing. And um, immediately, I, you know, I wrote him a check and invested in his fund. And the uh, Baron Fund was like the most successful investment of all time that I've ever seen. He was up. 25 times his first four years. What, what, what was your initial investment, if I can ask? I don't want to pry, but just fucking tell me. <laughs> I think we, I started with 100 grand. I didn't trust him. Okay. Um, well, he, I mean, listen, that's, had, not, that's he, not nothing. Yeah. Especially when it goes 25x. Yeah, no, it's one of those, oh, I should have trusted the guy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> was it 25 times? 
in the first four years or 25 times per year for the first four years? 25x in four years. Okay, yeah. okay, okay. So what happened was I kept, he kept doing so well. I, every opportunity, every little pullback, if he had a down month, I'd put more money in. And then uh, by 2004, I started working with him and because uh, I'd studied value investing for so long and his methods and all the kind of master's methods. And I studied due, due diligence and, and uh, started to help him analyze investment targets because he had all the deal flow. He saw all the deals, all the pipe opportunities, and he needed help analyzing. And so I started to pitch in. And uh, in 2004, he had his first, uh, we were going to get to China because in 2004, he had his first Chinese investment. Company Which one was that? America. Uh, it's probably American Oriental Bio engineering american oriental pharmacy chinese pharmaceutical company doesn't exist anymore uh, and, most um, of them don't so uh at that point 2004 i was living in vancouver and uh hired two chinese analysts chinese uh, canadians and had them check out chinese companies for baron partners and one after another we invested in half a dozen of these in 2004 into 2005 and it was working out really well. Now these were listed on our exchange. Yeah, they were bulletin board uplistings to NASDAQ okay. reverse mergers. All of them. Really? I think oh. I've, heard, I've heard of those. Yeah. Tell me more. So that's helping Barron's returns. And uh, to the point that, there were so many good Chinese investments. We decided together to open up an office in Shanghai. So I sent one of my staff to Shanghai to set up a Baron uh, EOS. My, my company name is EOS office in Shanghai. So we could do more research and find more good uh, reverse merger candidates. So that's interesting. You started to work with him, but it wasn't like, as a, a strictly an employee, you had your own firm, EOS. We, I guess you were a contractor for Baron Partners at that point? That's right. Due diligence. Okay. And you He was able to do all the deal sourcing because he's right. in New York. And he, every deal he's has access. And uh, we did the diligence in China. And that started in 2006? 2004. And we opened our office in China in 2005. You opened your office in 2005 in China. And when did you go out there? My first visit was in, was it the end of 04 or early 05? And you, you and, were in uh, Shanghai at that time? Yeah, for a visit. I was splitting most of my time between Canada and between Vancouver and Las Vegas. Okay. All right, so what happened next? Uh, the reverse mergers were making the fund all the money and the U.S. pipe started to lose money. And, uh, we had a meeting in the end of 2005 and decided to go our own kind of split up the team and go our own ways. I, uh, set up my own office in Beijing in China. Well, well why would you go your own? Half the what, well, just back and backing up for a second. You had, so you had a U.S. pipe. And you had the China pipe and you were in charge of the China pipe deals, right? Yeah, I was doing diligence on, I actually did diligence on a lot of U.S. deals too, um, before I moved to China. 
I, I was see. doing a lot of diligence for the Baron Fund in U.S. and China. Right. Uh, even I was doing most of their diligence. But when you moved and to China, I, you were handling China. But China was making the big money and had the biggest opportunities. Uh-huh. And so uh, I decided that the American investments were underperforming, and I wanted to get pull the money out, pull, pull our investment out of Baron Partners in 2005. Uh-huh. And, and who was this meeting and with? So we it, was just, just, it was just with uh, Andrew Warden? Yeah, yeah, the Andrew. And so we split up the team. Uh, I took half the team to Beijing and set up an EOS office, and the other half the team continued on in Shanghai sourcing and or doing the diligence for Baron Partners. Now, what, what was it like with the with – the, I mean, I imagine that Shanghai and Beijing, for that matter, were a bit different than South Carolina – or Las Vegas or Vancouver. Was there any kind of culture shock for you? Did you did you enjoy it? Did you did it did were you afraid of it? Tell me about like your first impressions. It was dirty. The air was dirty. Um, it was not a place that I wanted to live at all okay. because of the pollution as is, is the main thing I can remember. Super cold in the winter, hot in the summer and always polluted. Um, I like the people. You know, I enjoyed the, all the friends I made, but I didn't uh-huh. like Shanghai and Beijing. I didn't last there very long. Where did you um, end up? Well, <laughs> in 2006, um, there was a Chinese reverse merger retirement home company that wanted to list in the U.S. It was based in Chengdu in western China. Chengdu. Um, the first time I mentioned that name, this, my secretary said, oh, don't you know, Chengdu is a paradise for men. You should go there. You might like it. And I said, what do you mean a paradise for men? She said, oh, the food's really good and the ladies are very pretty. You might like it. You should go there. Uh, so, What else is there? Yeah. <laughs> I said I said to my colleague, I said, why have you never told us about this? We've never <laughs> been to Chengdu. Let's go. He turns around. He slaps his analyst. <laughs> Yeah, right. You know I don't like Beijing. Start the car. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So we went to uh, Chengdu, and the company there was a scam, complete scam, like like a lot of companies. Um, but we liked Chengdu, and we decided immediately, you know, we let's open up an office here. Well, tell well tell me about like you, you just say that like like a throwaway line. The company is a complete scam. Like we know that today. But in 2005 or 2006, you're going to Chengdu and you're doing your due diligence checklist. How did you figure out that the company was a scam? Uh, numbers didn't make any sense. You know, the company, in that case, the company walked us through the numbers. Numbers didn't make any sense. Um, I can honestly say at that point, we didn't have some of the, you know, a lot of the diligent skills that we developed later on, but it just didn't make any sense. And eventually the boss of the company confessed, just confessed. You know, he said, you're my friends. We've been, you've had, we've had a great time together the last few weeks and uh, you don't want to invest in our company. It's the numbers aren't real. Wow. Wow. Well, so we moved on. He, he confessed. Yeah. That was the end of that. It's interesting. I've heard story after story about, the real conversation that you can get when you're in China, especially if you're having drinks with the CEO. And people have to understand that in China, a CEO is all important. 
unquestioned by anybody in the company. A CFO is a nobody, just some number cruncher, generally right out of college, that is told what to do, make the numbers fit, make it work, and they do it. And below that, none of the employees would question a CEO. Is it, was that your experience, John? Absolutely, yeah. Right. Was, was that the first fraud you came, came across when you were in China or? Oh no, that was probably the 20th. Did all the companies eventually, most of them admit that they were bullshit or did you ever have a, a real conversation with one of these 20 frauds to say, Hey, look, we, we, we've run the numbers, we've kicked the tires and you're completely full of shit. Yeah. I mean, that kind of conversation happened and, uh, you know, a lot of them would admit it. A lot of them would try to prevaricate around it. it we, just, we see it differently. But, uh, well, I, you know, would it go something like, you know, you got me, you're right. So I'll give you 50% instead of 30%. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> that was a common tactic was once you figure out the real numbers, then you can buy the, the deal at a discount. Right. And that ultimately became one of my issues was that, the discount went away as, oh. as China got hot and more of you Americans were chasing after Chinese companies, the discount went away. So if I'm going to buy garbage, I want to buy it really, really cheap as a value investor. Well, garbage is one way of putting it, but you're saying that they were frauds. So they're not really garbage as much as they're just a bunch of fucking liars. And I mean, I don't know. I mean, for my part, like, you know, how do you feel about like saying, okay, we know they're a fraud, but they're giving us a much better discount. Did, did you do any of that? I want to say that the, in 2005 and six, seven, the fraud word didn't come up. It was, they're growing 50% a year and they're making $2 million this year. Uh -huh. And then they would try to tell you that we're growing hundred percent a year and we're making $5 million. Right. Right. I remember that tactic. Right. And then a lot and of it the... hasn't been, it hasn't been listed yet. The audit's not even done yet. Uh huh. You're at this pre reverse merger stage where you're just trying to get the right price. Uh huh. Uh huh. And they're exaggerating their performance, obviously, uh -huh. which was quite common. Um, very few weren't. Yeah, it, and, uh, yeah, it's it, it's crazy, like the beginning of this China craze that a lot of otherwise savvy, normal investors that would put up with no shenanigans really kind of drank the Kool-Aid with, well, this is China. It's a little different here. I mean, obviously, they have a couple sets of books. Everybody knows that it's fine. It's and when we started we started exposing these frauds uh, for, for our part in 2010 and 11 is when it started for us. We got that kind of pushback that like, nah, you, you just don't really understand China, but fraud is fraud, right? It doesn't matter whether it's in China or here in the United States. And eventually as their, as, as their market starts to catch up to ours, they weren't able to use that excuse anymore, but they tried, they tried and did effectively for like 10 years. Yeah, I would say in in 05, 06, I thought that these things were going to be cleaned up, would be the word to describe it, before the reverse merger. I that see. The auditor was going to was going to crack down and 
and uh, you know the real numbers would be the ones that eventually made it into those SEC filings. Right, because the auditors, I mean, they're they're fucking on top of it, right? I mean, they don't put up with any kind of shenanigans. That's what I thought back then. Right, me too. Right? So, I get it. Yeah, yeah. I didn't, I absolutely didn't think that Barron Partners and EOS were investing in frauds. I didn't think that way. I thought okay. that the companies, you know, exaggerated their performance and that it would all get sorted out by the time it went public. Well, just to be clear, exaggerating your performance work. is fraud, uh, but, but, but. I, I have heard over and over again that like you're now you're not dealing with a CEO that graduated from Harvard. You're dealing with a CEO that maybe has an eighth grade education. And and the excuse became through the process of becoming a public company, you'll put in more savvy operators who will put in the checks and the balances and take any kind of fraud that was necessary dealing with a communist government out of the business wants to become a capitalist market entity. Uh, only what ended up happening is the fraud never went away. It only got bigger. Yeah, maybe. Um, I mean, on the other hand, these are private companies that uh, are trying to minimize their tax in China. Right. That's what I'm saying. They had one set of books, right, that they that you can look at that we looked at, the textbooks. We like to base our opinion of their profitability based on what they report to their government. Right. And then they tell you, well, you know, really we're a lot more profitable than what we show on our textbooks, right? That right. set of books. Here's the set of books we want investors to see. Right. And then we would negotiate with that and say, we don't think you're as profitable as what you want us to believe. Um. And we'll ultimately we'll see how the auditor interprets you know these financials because we're not we're certainly not experts on accounting, but at this stage we're willing to pay you and invest at four times this number. Okay. And we think that you should go public in the U.S. and then maybe you'll go public at six times that, okay. that number. And then what happened? You know where it starts to get nasty is these guys end up going public at ten times, this uh, an even bigger number. Right. It didn't make any sense to us. Then we sold our stock, right? And it got a lot worse after that, because then you're moving into 2009, 2010. It went completely, you know, completely insane, right? That was that was it was it was bonkers. It was I mean like after the market crash in 2008, it was absolutely fucking insane with the amount of RTOs that were coming here. And, and a lot of these CEOs, I'm not making excuses for them because you know, they deserve what they get, which is, you know, all the money they stole from us. I guess they don't deserve that. But what they're told by American finders is, okay, you know, your real business here does $10 million a year and your profit is $500,000 a year. But what you want to be is a $100 million a year business with a profit of $10 million a year, right? And the CEO's like, yeah, that's absolutely what I want to be. But you need more money to do that. So what we're going to do is tell the American market that you're already a $100 million a year revenue company and you already have $10 million a year flow through. And once you get this injection of money, 
you'll build your business to the point to where you are no longer lying about that. You're right. You know, the, the lie will become the truth and they get caught in between. They never get to that hundred million dollars. They said they were, they get caught by somebody like us that exposes them and everybody. They thought that there was their, that was their friend on the American side, the, the lawyer, the auditor, the finder are like, what? Well, I, I don't know what's going on. This, this China based CEO must be a liar. Absolutely. That's exactly what happened in 08, 09. Um, I would just say it's the middlemen that did the dirty work, right? The fine. I'm calling them the finder. Yeah. But Finders, yeah, the middle. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. The, the middlemen. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. They would do the dirty work. I mean, you know, we, we know who a lot of these guys are and they, they absolutely cleared out. I mean, a fucking mountain of cash. I mean, some people would say Ben way was a finder. I would be part of some people. Uh, you would be like that. Dr. Kit was a finder. Uh, and you know, all they really did is make about a hundred million bucks and, you know, were taken advantage of by this China based CEO, just like the rest of us. They were lucky to get away with their hundred million. You know, um, I never quite bought it, but whatever life goes on. All right. Oh, you don't I'm want you, you don't want you don't want to go back after Ben Way, huh? After that epic. No, nah, I was going to yeah. say I thought Ben Way was a comedian. <laughs> how, how did you think Ben Way was a comedian? He wrote some really nice articles about me. Oh, he did. Yeah, that's right. That's right. I, I saw that. I saw that. And I enjoyed were, reading. They 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 were funny, and he particularly went after a couple of reporters too, which was, it's a pretty gross thing. They uh, didn't understand his humor. No, no, but he, he definitely became a First Amendment fan, didn't he? <laughs> All right, so take me through the BCSC hearing. Man, you're just... no comment, not allowed. Oh, you can't talk about them? I'm not allowed. I'm oh, under, okay. Uh, confident, whatever you want to call it, a settlement, so I'm not allowed to say anything. You can't talk about the BCSC hearing or wherever? Uh, that's Maybe. fine. As yeah. long as doesn't come up, but that was kind of the point of the hearing. So, no, I just love trying. the fact that they they ask you about this charity, and then you're like, "Yeah, and uh, how much do you donate a year from your charity?" Yeah, I remember that. Yep, approximately eighty percent. Wow, is that still the case? Yeah, it's. I mean, it's basically it's a hundred percent. The only investor since 2011 is the charity. Wow. Cool. So, like, you know, we're, we're going to find some place to, to put that in and talk about that some more. But where we were, just in the chronological order, is you pretty much decided you weren't doing the pipe deals anymore in China. And at what point did you decide you were going to go on the short side or publish something? And, and what did you do that under? No. Uh, just for fun, right? Uh, no. 2009, 2009 was a horrible year. Every, all of our peers are bragging how they're up 50%. I mean, the average Chinese reverse merger, Dan, I mean, was it up 
fifty percent, hundred percent. It completely, it completely pulled us out of the hole for two thousand and eight, and we, we, we. I, I wasn't investing. You know, Maj was handling the investing prior to the two thousand and eight crash, and I had no, no parts of that. And after that two thousand and eight crash happened, you know, I decided I wasn't going to let anybody control my money like that anymore. Uh, and so I started to pay more attention. In 2009, most of everything we had left went into a China RTO long. And ah, yeah, you're one of those guys. Yeah, having a huge year. And it, it we everything we lost in 2008, we got back in 2009, investing long in China. And 2009 for us was a horrible year because. Every company that the Americans were buying for 20 times their exaggerated earnings, we we passed on. We you know we we knew the truth and it wasn't anywhere near as profitable as they claimed, and we weren't investing in any of the deals. And every deal was doubling and tripling, and so we're having this horrible year. And at the end of 2009, I thought surely this is close to the peak, uh, just technically these stocks should correct. Mm. How about we short one? And then, you know, what? Short? We never short. But let's try it. And then, well, what if we short one and the market was to dis- discover that the CEO has a criminal background and spent time in prison? Hmm. And nobody will care, right? <laughs> but let's try it just as a test. Go short. A quarter million dollars worth of the stock and then go over on the internet and leak his criminal history and see what happens. Will people care? The, right? the, Will people care at all? This was dangerous for you because you were in China. At the time, we didn't even realize that. It was just so obvious. This Everybody knows the guy's a crook, right? Right. We didn't, th- we did, we actually didn't. Well, everybody, everybody in China knew. Yeah. We didn't think we had any danger. We've been living in China for, at that point for four years. And uh, crooks are crooks, right? Okay. Post his mugshot. What will investors do when they see the CEO's mugshot? Uh-huh. For my part, we totally believe the numbers in 2009. We had no due diligence capabilities outside of what we'd use here in the United States, which is, you know, perfunctory at best right you call the ceo the cfo and you you know you talk about the numbers and and get what you can uh and we did the same thing with the china-based ceos only we met them at a roth conference or a rodman and renshaw conference and i mean we could do a whole podcast on those conferences they were just fucking outrageous really uh or breen murray or global hunter or any of these you know uh second third tier banks and we would meet with the CEO and the CFO, and we believed them. Now, it's, we weren't in China like you, so you knew the truth. Who was the most egregious on your, your top 20 hit list? <laughs> uh, most egregious. That's a pretty, they're that's all a so, pretty they're fucking all high They're all just bar. so egregious, right? Yeah. yeah. Who's the most egregious? I don't know if I ever even thought of who's the most. They're just all so bad. Yep. Well, I would imagine it was the next one you did, right? Our, our list was sorted out purely by the easiest. 
who is the easiest to expose? Who okay. is the most obvious? Okay. Egregious might mean who, who'd raised the most money and cheated the most people, right? Most sure. investors. So uh, who was next? And, and how did you how did you release this information? Anonymously. Um, we created a website called Worthless Pennies. That's what it was called, Worthless Pennies. That was your first website, Worthless Pennies. Okay. And who, who was next? After Sinoclean. I'm sorry. No, it definitely was not Sinoclean because I was in the picture for Sinoclean. Was it? Thank you. <laughs> was that it? John? I, I'm thinking, I'm remembering. I'm don't know if we want to get into it. I don't know. Uh, that's okay. If you don't want to get into it, you don't want to get it. Look, I understand. And people should understand. Basically, guys, what happened after the kind of fun that we had with China, Bio China Biologic is that it got serious. Right. Companies, companies, Chinese companies didn't want to have the dirty laundry, you know, exposed. And and uh, we were living in China, all of us, and pretty easy for a company to come back and retaliate whatever way they wanted to. So, you know, it got ugly right after China bi Biologic. Right. There's one stock in particular you, you don't necessarily want to talk about. And um, just for people listening, it's, it's not that, John, you don't want to talk about your part in any of this as if you've done something wrong. You haven't. Uh, it's that you want to go back to China at some point uh, for your family. Uh, there are some some people who are Chinese nationalists in your family and some of your team want to go back to China for, you know, I mean, I think you're fucking nuts, but like that's what you want. Uh, so you have to be kind of careful about who you piss off these days uh, and what you say. So uh, there are going to be some things that I'm going to ask that you're not going to be able to talk about, and that's fine. But what ended up resulting in what you just said about uh, this getting serious is that Worthless Pennies was found out by somebody that was very influential in China. And they let you know they knew who you were. And right. <laughs> in the most uncertain terms, standing in your office with many of your employees, telling you where you were standing in an airport at the time. Correct. And uh, that was the end of Worthless Pennies. Yep. Yeah. So then uh, if you want to continue to expose fraudulent companies you need to take it to the next level uh, create a pseudonym yeah create a create a fake identity and who would that be that would be mr alfred little how i have asked you this question in the past and i want to see if this answer changes at all so i'm testing you here <laughs> how did the name alfred little get chosen i don't know that that ain't but believe it I or not i remember sitting with my team in chengdu and we wanted to come up with a guy 
who was absolutely nothing like John Carnes. Right. And we came up with, he needs to be old. He needs to be big four accountant background. Yeah. You know, working for multinationals. Somebody who's not John Carnes. And we dreamed this guy up and we created his fake background to lead people away from us. Keep, keep us secret as long as possible. And uh, th- by the way, that, that story has not changed. Uh, he, you have never actually explained where the actual name Alfred Little came from. It was just like it just popped up out of thin air. But it was an awesome name. Uh, so, and this became a problem for you down the road, by the way, just for any listeners, uh, that when you are choosing a pseudonymous name, to depart greatly from your actual experience and, 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 and possibly embellish to what this synonymous character's experience is can get you in pretty big trouble. Uh, I remember at one point, John, you had to explain how your actual experience and ability was that of or greater than an auditor and it actually is. Right. Yeah. Um, the uh, Securities Commission of British Columbia was not, uh, uh, didn't approve of the Alfred Little pseudonym because. Well, the background, among, mostly, right? Yeah, the background. Because, among other reasons, the Alfred, Alfred Little had more experience in their opinion than John Carnes. Alfred Little claimed that he was. Uh, uh, worked for a big four, I think Deloitte, that he worked with big companies like Coca-Cola as they spearheaded their way into Chinese market. And um, whereas John Carnes uh, had 20, 20, 25 years experience investing and had lived in China for five years, um, Alfred Little was older, much older, and had much more experience and because of that, uh, John Carnes committed a fraud against investors for misrepresenting his experience in in, uh, in evaluating Chinese companies. And and you beat that. You beat that yeah. rap for for the, for the low low cost of like two million dollars in legal fees. Of course, right. Uh, and and one of the things that that comes up is like. You know, and I, I don't know how to fit this in here, but people are like, oh, okay, so you're going after XYZ Mining Company. What do you know about mines? And John, you come out with, well, you know, I used to own one. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know that either. It's just that just had to just like blow somebody away asking you questions in like a, a deposition manner. You're like, oh, by the way, I owned a mine. And then they kind of wadir you about whether you own this mine or not, correct? It was just ridiculous. Not, to, I mean, it's things like, uh, Mr. Grange, you bought put options. $10 million notional value of put options. Yeah. In the money that if they'd expired would have been worthless and you would have lost $10 million. Is that correct? No, because they were in the money. Ten million dollars notional. If they'd expired, they've expired in the money. I would have just been short the stock. 
no loss at all. Wow. Wow. And then, you know, yelling at me, right? <laughs> you would have lost $10 million. You had to publish a false report because if you hadn't, you would have lost $10 million. No, you, sir, you don't understand how put options work. If they're in the money when they expire, I didn't lose anything other than the premium that I paid, which was less than the borrow fee had I borrowed stock that wasn't available to borrow and shorted it. And those were the regulators asking those questions, right? Yes. And th- and then they got mad because you and made them feel stupid. Curious. You're lying. Right. You would have lost $10 million if you hadn't published your negative report. Yeah. Yeah. We don't we, we don't really have to debate how you know subregulators individually can be morons, uh, but you know, how, when did you own a mine, and how did you come about owning a mine? Uh, we were considering investing in a porcelain, which was porcelain is like potassium something or other mineral and we are considering investing in a let's call it a porcelain mine mm-hmm. they make the mineral that is used in china to create chinese porcelain and we spent initial engagement fees and diligence and hired a uh, very respected uh international geologist who happened to to do geological consulting for a uh, listed company overseas, very famous company, and hired him to evaluate the mine. And uh, he explained to us the valuation, and we invested in this porcelain, we call it a porcelain mine. Okay. And um, at that point, that's like in 2005 or so. Okay, so that was in China. Yeah. We had our first experience in mining, and then after that, I began investing in a different kind of mining, uh, the oil and gas. And I invested in uh, gas extraction, gas, um, natural gas drilling in in uh, Pennsylvania. Oh, oh, wow! Right down the road, huh? Uh, <laughs> yeah, in the Utica Shale up up near Erie. Right. Mm-hmm. And so we'd done joint venture partners, a couple of them in, in Erie, you know, outside of Erie and invested in this porcelain mine in China. And uh, you know, we're pretty familiar with this whole idea of of, uh, of the measured, indicated, inferred, proven, probable reserves. And, you know, we've done it all before. No big deal. It's not that complicated. Right. So you really did. You really did explain how you did have the relevant experience just in a different way to a big four auditor uh and and that's that's how you beat that part of the rap anyway yeah of course okay it wasn't an issue what other uh businesses did you own john uh i've wasted countless millions in <laughs> countless money in uh movie industry mm this is fantastic. I have, I have a hor- horrible track record investing in horror movies. <laughs> oh, are, are any of them on Netflix or Amazon Prime? Yeah, I, I may have probably. seen them. I've let's, probably seen let's them. Check. Let's look up. You have Wizard some names? Of Gore. 
<laughs> Wizard, Wizard of, of Gore. Gore. That one I have not seen, <laughs> but uh, I'm adding it to my list now. That sounds like the year we're having. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, Wizard of Gore, 2007. Not the original 1970 with Herschel Gordon Lewis. He's a, it's just, you know, a freak. But we made <laughs> Wizard of Gore 2007 uh, with Kip Pardue, Crispin Glover. Oh, oh, Crispin nice. Glover. Oh, yeah. Rat Boy. That's cool. Yeah, check it out. It's great. Oh. But well, it, it lost me like a million dollars in 2007. Where can I find it? Netflix, Amazon Prime? And it's like... You know, we we conscripted the Suicide Girls. Do you know who Suicide Girls are? Yes. Okay. They that's, were featured. It's, funny, in the it's film. funny that Carl would be the first one to be yeah. like, "Yes, yeah, I know Speak who they are." For all of us, I, I take it there was nudity in that. A lot, yeah. It was. <laughs> that explains Carl's yes. <laughs> I don't understand the rate. I don't understand the ratings. I thought it was a wonderful horror movie. But it lost me a million dollars. Bayou Phillips. So so far you've lost two million dollars making movies. At least, yeah. And, and, and like yeah. I have, I have a kind of an anecdotal story out of order here. At some point, John Carnes and I passed the story of where we are now. Got to know each other. Now I didn't know John Carnes, the person, for a year after speaking to Alfred Little. And Alfred Little and I spoke often throughout that year because at some point early on, we got sued together. Uh, the Sinoclean Energy was convinced that we were in a cabal and yes. that we were trying to hurt their stock, even though John and his team had their own separate investigation going on on Sinoclean, Jill and, and our team had a separate investigation going on at Sinoclean. And it just turns out like we were a day ahead of him in publishing. And then he had published something. So look, I get it. I get how people think, okay, they were working on that together. Now, after we published and it became, we're, we're being accused of it. We did start working together on it. We're like, Oh, okay, well this guy's working on it. Let's, let's pull resources here. And that became, you know, a, a running fight for like two years. But, during some of these fights that we ended up having over the next two or three years, one of them involved L&L Energy. Mm. Yeah. And there was this guy who was the main pumper, I'm going to call him, in L&L Energy. His name is Mark Jensen. And he was a particularly atrocious cunt uh, who I cannot stand to this day because I feel like there are dozens of investors that stayed in L and L for like two years because of his assurances of I've been to the mine, I vetted the mine, I know all about mining, blah, blah, blah. Well it turns out Mark and John worked together at Barron Partners. And and Mark knew more about John than I did. So we we had filmed the mine and we had filmed the mine owners saying I own the mine Dixon Lee doesn't own the mine it's you know that kind of a thing well this guy starts posting both in his name and anonymously well John probably did that in his Vancouver studio where he makes movies and this and that and it was just like <laughs> gibberish it was nonsense to me that 
there's this Vancouver studio and movie making, whatever. Because because I know that we were actually setting up, our operators were setting up real cameras, real time, doing real due diligence. And I call up John and I'm like, what is this asshole talking about? And once again, John, a throwaway line. Oh, he's probably talking about when I used to make movies. <laughs> oh. <laughs> no, oh. Right. You want to tell me about that, John? <laughs> when you used to make movies? He's like, oh, yeah, three or four movies I used to make. And uh, the last yeah. one was IOU USA, a documentary uh, that came out in, in July of 2008. With none other than Warren Buffett in it. And you'd think that fucking information would come up in, in like the prior two years, but it never had with him. And I'm like, okay, tell me about IOU USA. And he's like, well, we were saying in in July of 2008 that the stock market was going to crash and that, you know, there, there are all these non-performing loans with housing and blah, blah, blah. And I'm, the next month it crashed. He's like, yeah, but nobody saw the movie. <laughs> <laughs> Just like whatever horrors of Babylon, you know, horror movie that he, he had put out. Uh, but it was very, very interesting that your first documentary was not the documentary that shall not be mentioned. So you don't get in trouble in China. Uh, but it was IOU USA, correct? Correct. Yeah. So tell us about that. So IOUSA um, was based on a book by William Bonner, my friend Bill Bonner, uh, called Empire of Debt. I read the book and thought it was brilliant and thought that they should make a documentary. And um, went met with, um, I met Bill. Bill's always in France somewhere in his chateau. But I met with Addison, his business partner, and said, look, Bill Bonner's book is brilliant and it's predicting a stock market collapse and should get made into a documentary as soon as possible before the market collapses. And um, the, that spawned IOUSA. And that's where you met Sarah Gibson, right? Yeah, because uh, I made... Wizard of Gore, which was an absolute disaster. I somewhere along the way, I ran into Sarah Gibson, and uh, Sarah was big into making documentaries, which don't make any money. But not making any money is better than losing a million dollars. And I said, <laughs> "Look, Empire Debt's a great book. It needs to get made into a documentary, and maybe we can break even on it. That's better than losing." And she agreed, and we convinced Bill Bonner and his company to turn his book into a um, film about the debt problem in the United States in 2008. How did you get Warren Buffett in? Yeah, well, that was Sarah Gibson. She's amazing. She, uh, you know, I said, Sarah, Warren Buffett wrote a short story for some reason about the trade deficit. He called it Squanderville and Thriftville. And Squanderville and Thriftville is basically a story about United States and China. One country spends a lot of money. The other country saves a lot of money. One country buys a lot of products from the other country and has a horrible balance of trade deficit. And Buffett's warning Americans that this can't persist forever because the Thriftville people in China ultimately will accumulate lots and lots of 
U.S. dollar cash and use that cash to buy up uh, all of your American country. How wrong could he be? <laughs> well, he's really worried about this. This was a big well, issue. Well, he should for be. Buffett. So he's so concerned he wrote this story. And I said, you know, it's it could be considered a part of the empire of debt uh, because the Chinese financing of the U.S. Uh, budget deficits and debt and balance of payments debt is part of the issue. So let's see if Buffett would be willing to take Squanderville story and have it con and contribute it to IOUSA. So Sarah called up Buffett's office and said, Mr. Buffett, we'd like to take your short story and turn it into a documentary. And we're thinking our idea is that we're going to turn it into this like little cartoon in the film. And Mr. Buffett actually immediately responded, that's a great idea. I'd love to see my short story turned into a little cartoon in the documentary. That's great. I agree. Let's do it. And they um, met with him and he agreed and off we went. And we made, uh, you know, this one segment of, there's three parts to IUSA, the budget deficit caused by Washington, right? The trade deficit caused by whatever and the savings deficit. And so the trade deficit was Mr. Buffett, his chief concern. Mm -hmm. And we made a little cartoon in the movie about the problems with trade and what happens if a foreign country finances your trade. And, and you premiered it in Omaha, right? Correct. Yeah. So when it came time, when the movie was done, and it was getting good reviews. It needed a nice release. And we said, Mr. Buffett, can we, would it be okay if we premiered in Omaha? And can we do it at the Civic Center where you do the, the uh, Berkshire Hathaway annual meetings? And would you host it? And he said, sure. Cool. Right? Wow. And so absolutely, it, that's what it ended up. It's like the whole town hall event. And Mr. Buffett got on stage and asked, and was is answer questions. Uh, about the economy, just as the uh, Wall Street was beginning its 2008, August 2008 panic. Is the stock market going to crash? What should we do? Is there really a debt problem? Mm -hmm. And, and nobody he listened. Was, as, as always optimistic, you know, I always buy stocks. You'll be good if you buy stocks. Don't worry right. about it. Well, I mean. And then the stock market crashed. And, and then Goldman Sachs went to him for a bailout. And he made yes. a shit ton of money because he and, had cash on the side. And Bank of America. Yeah. Yeah, and Bank of America. So, well, so you met Warren Buffett. Yeah, we had dinner that night. At Did the you? premiere in, in Omaha. Don't people pay like a shit ton of money to have dinner with Warren Buffett? I, I, I think I've do. heard that, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I know there was like a raffle of some sort. Yeah. So, so, so did you, you did you cheese it and ask him for stock tips when you had dinner with him? Uh, I wouldn't. I bet he didn't. No, no. <laughs> to know John. Yeah, we're we're more interested in his diet. Like, really? You, know, you have a horrific diet. You well, should he be has dead. a McDonald's every day for breakfast, right? No. Right. You should be dead. McDonald's, Dairy Queen, Coca Cola. Why are yeah. you still alive? Yeah. It's right? pres preserving him, I guess. Preservatives. He goes to the drive-through every morning and gets an egg McMuffin uh, the hash brown 
And is it, it's a Coke. He gets a Coke instead of a coffee, right? Or a cherry Coke, yeah. Yeah. Oh. And his, his wife actually sets out the exact amount of money that it takes to buy said McDonald's. Yeah, yeah. And puts it like right there in his dash. So he just hands it to the lady every morning. That's what I. That's what I've heard. That's what I've seen. I don't know if it's. He, he doesn't have some assistant that does that for him. No, well, he brings in his own McDonald's, it. and then he just you know he reads all morning and eats his egg McMuffin and his Coke and his hash brown, and he's good to go. Right. He, he does not eat well. But that's cool. And and look, I'm not saying that's why I hung up on him, but I did. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so you did. That's that's one of the one of the businesses you owned. But I think the most important business to Carl that you owned, the Cure, the Cure. Tell us about the Cure, John. <laughs> it's it's freaking legi- it's legendary. <laughs> it, is, it is. You're killing me. Oh, uh, the Cure me. was fantastic. I, I, Let I, me just set this up for you, John. John, you apparently owned a pharmacy, correct? That's correct. I invested um, in, uh, it's one of those barren deals in Texas. We invested uh-huh. in one of the first electronic pharmacies. It started with a due diligence trip to New Orleans. Um, back then, things like oxycodone were quite popular, popularized uh-huh. by the companies and manufacturers, a Purdue company. and. I went to New Orleans because I had heard that there was a pharmacy in New Orleans that was generating $20 million a year in revenue. I Mm -hmm. thought this is impossible. $3 million a year in net profit. Wow. Was this a compounding pharmacy? One pharmacy. Not just, not just, you know, this is one single location. They didn't have, it wasn't a chain, right? Yeah. This is impossible. So I went to New Orleans and, and, went to this location and discovered it's true people line up in the morning to get their oxy Uh, from the pharmacy and uh, it's making a killing right mm -hmm, this is like mm -hmm. 2004 or so 2004 and i met the and so we're we you know we want to get a deal on this and the issue is that the owner of the pharmacy is a is a gambling addict he's addicted to the ponies betting Mm -hmm. on the ponies Mm-hmm. So I go in his pharmacy and he's got these weird like see-through windows, see-through glass and screens and security. And I go in his management office and he's got all these customers lined up and he's got all these screens running. And I said, I don't understand the screens you're running. You're watching all these horse races. And he's like, yep, I take all the profits. I'm just honest with you, John. I take all the profits and I gamble it all away on the ponies. Sounds like one of the China-based CEOs. Yeah, he he just admitted I'm gamble it all away, but it's an incredibly profitable business. I encourage you to stay here and watch and see how much money we make. I'm like, okay, and then he starts to explain to me. Everyone in the line that you can see on our closed circuit outside with flip flops are an addict. If they're wearing flip flops, they're an addict, and <laughs> they're lying to us when they come in our pharmacy. <laughs> Their prescription, whatever, but who cares? We fill it. Wow. And we fill $20 million worth of prescriptions. You can audit that. I don't care. We make $3 million a year in profit, 
and I'm addicted to gambling and at all $3 million I lose every year and I owe the, all these guys all this money. But you take it over, you guys are going to make $3 million a year. And so I reported back you know, to Barron Partners, this is a great investment if we can get rid of this gambling addict. Um, you know, United States is in support of this kind of oxycodone extended release stuff. And, uh, you know, we should buy it. So we did, and we invested however many millions of dollars in safe scripts. It was called safe scripts because it's safe. Because Uh, uh, your prescription is transferred to us over the internet between you and your, from your doctor to us. So it's safe. (laughs) And uh, safe scripts was a huge, I mean, it's like a 10 times multi-bagger. And um, it made the fund a lot of money. Um, I guess ultimately the chairman turned out he was kind of like addicted to the stuff too he ended up going to jail we well, got couldn't out. happen to Peter a nice guy in on that one but anyway safe scripts safe scripts was a d- complete disaster the boss went to jail we so got you out made, early you said you made 10 times your money thanks to our solid due diligence as soon as mr lynch and his followers bid the stock up we sold and exercised our warrants and sold out of everything uh-huh. and uh did quite well before it all collapsed. Right. Where were we? We were talking about... Um, well, I mean, and look, it has to be said that, like, you know... There are you no said lo- I had a pharmacy, Dan. Well, there are, no losers in the, there are no losers in the story except for the, you know, the people who got addicted and fucking died because of your pony guy uh, that decided to fill scripts without any kind of diligence. But he was, he was among the many at that time. Anyway... The reason that Carl loves the fact that you owned a pharmacy is because when we were snowboarding in at Whistler, uh, you and I had become friends uh, at this point. And I think we're now talking circa 2014. Uh, and you were in Vancouver, I knew. And I said, hey, we're, we're coming out there. We're, we do a snowboarding trip with guys I play football with. Uh, and if you want to come up and see us when we're there, that'd be great. And you did. And Carl being Carl got absolutely fucking annihilated the first night we were there. Like, right. And so bad that he was not going to go to the mountain that day. Like we're all getting geared up and going on. Carl just like was crawling. I was tapping out. And John, you're just like, hey, what's going on with with this guy? And he's obviously hung over. And Carnes looks at, you had Zane with you, one of your friends, assistants, guys who does due diligence and background checks for you, mm-hmm. right? Because his son yes. went snowboarding with Absolutely. us. And you gave him a list. And you said, go get this from the pharmacy. And if I remember correctly, it's like six over-the-counter drugs. And you called it the cure. And if you take these six drugs... With a bottle of water, you are completely fine within a half an hour. Is this true, Carl? It only took 20 minutes. And you were just like, you were dying, right? Oh, it, it went from death uh, to worshiping at the porcelain god to, uh, okay, let's go. Right. It, it was, it was, it's the cure. It's, it's magic. I have the cure in my bag right now, just so you know. <laughs> I, I do. It's six over-the-counter 
drugs. Yeah, jo- yeah, John, you want to tell them what it is? I mean, like this is not a, this is not something that you hide as a formula, right? You tell people. Should be shared with the world. It, it, it's, it's, yes. Yeah. Now we we with you know, that with that Dan, give me five minutes. Yeah. Why is that? I want to get the backstory on the cure. Okay. Oh. Yeah. Oh. Give me, give me, it it yeah. started with this weird FDA thing. Yeah, well, and, and let's, let's put put out there, and this has definitely got to go in there. We're not advocating that you should take this. We are not doctors in any way, pharmacists in any way, even though John owned a pharmacy. We're just telling you about our experience that ever since Carl took it and made a miraculous recovery, we have used it no less than, I don't know, 20, 30 times, 100 times between all our friends and never gotten a complaint, right? I'm trying to find the history of the cetirizine, the antihistamine that made the cure. But uh, I'm at a loss. I can't remember. So you, you don't really remember. Yeah, yeah, this, this is an excellent question. How did you come up with the cure? The history was I'm doing this diligence and there's this European company that we're considering investing in. And their drug doesn't get approved. Mm-hmm. And their drug is this Zyrtec stuff, cetirizine. It's an antihistamine. And after it doesn't get approved, I'm having this kind of like call with the CFO of this European company. And I'm explaining to him that, you know, I found that your cetirizine is actually quite useful if you're hungover. And he said, yeah, I need a lot of that tonight because after our drug didn't get approved after this, I'm, I could use that. And I said, yeah, really, seriously, take your cetirizine, take some ibuprofen, take some emetic, some anti-nausea medicine, which is what Dramazine, what, what, what Dramazine, yep, yeah, yep, yeah. and you'll be fine. And he said, "I'm going to try that tonight." And I said, "Do it. It works." And that was kind of this little conversation I had with this CFO of this European drug company. And then he followed up, "Yeah, it works. Wow, yeah, I feel great." It's actually. And so I thought. Oh, it's yeah. actually like four drugs, isn't it? Do you remember what it is? No, it really just comes down to if you've had a lot to drink, take an antihistamine, take a pain reliever or inflammatory reducer, right? A, a Tylenol or a, or a uh, ibuprofen. Well, and... you have you you prescribed uh, Advil, right? Wasn't it Advil in there? Yeah, sure. Yeah. Yeah. Advil. Take an Advil. And then a a, dram, a Dramamine. And a, yeah, an anti-nausea. Right. anti-emectic and you're good huh I'm, I'm ready to pull so my these... cure out to see exactly what's in what's in that little baggie but I, I could swear there's a fourth one in there too there's a Sudafed right so there's Sudafed and a decongestant oh yes you are yeah. correct yes that's right there's a decongestant in yeah. there that's right so there is four there is four so you Any had histamine. one too many cocktails tonight that's why I'm on the soda water. Oh, uh, you know uh. what? There's a good chance there could be whiskey in this. <laughs> All right, so that is the cure. And what did you just come across that by chance? 
I discovered it before this company had reported their bad quarter and their losses. And, you know, I tried to console their CFO and said, come on, your drug works. It's great. Use it all the time. <laughs> We're hung over the, you know, from the night out at the bar. Yeah. All right, cool. Well, that it does work 100% for us anyway. All right. So that that's another business you owned, uh, a pharmacy. You made uh, a buttload of money there, too, on the misery of people's lives. Congratulations. <laughs> um, what else? After that, you, you were, were up to like 2010. And I can tell you for my part in 2010... Uh, that my uh, former partner, Maj Swedan, um, I think that's who you communicated with at first. I think most people did because he was kind of the investing side, especially at that point. But he really wasn't the interpersonal side. So there were some real missed opportunities where that's concerned. But we're at a Steelers game because he's a Steelers fanatic and, you know, 10, 12 of us used to go to these games and really just to go out and drink and play football ourselves the day before the game. And some of us went to the game, some of us didn't. But anyway, he says, there's this guy in China. His name's Alfred Little. Actually, that's not his name. It's a fake name, but he told me it's a fake name. And he says that these companies like China Media Express, Deer, uh, Consumer Electronics, Rhino, um, you name it, are all frauds. And that, you know, he wants to talk to us about putting this information out there because he's in China and the Chinese security services is already hassling him and coming after him. And so he can't do it himself. And what do you think I said, John? Uh, tell me what you said. I said, what are you fucking nuts? Some guy, I mean, I mean, seriously, dude, let me repeat this back to you. How, in what way does this sound real? You know, these, these people are just <laughs> spoofing the market. They're, they're short sellers trying to scare people, make a few bucks. They're lying. The irony. Oh, uh, yeah, absolutely. That's the, the thing, irony. though. I, I was there, but for sure, for sure. The difference is I hired my own team to go check these companies out, as many people in my position did. And we all came back with the same conclusion. But most people who came back with that conclusion did nothing about it. I was fucking pissed. I could not believe it. And, and we had CCME, uh, by the way, in like uh, July of 2010. We had the SAIC filings for CCME and Deer were the first two we pulled. And they were so far off that we could not believe that these SAIC filings could be correct. They just would not be lying by that kind of factor. And our, our China-based, you know, who, who really kind of became our DD expert and, he had a, you know, a law degree, He's a lawyer in China, and he just got his law degree here in the United States. He didn't buy it either, by the way. He wasn't like, oh, this is all, yeah, this is right. So he was very skeptical as well. He learned with us. And then Maz breaks, you know, Alfred Little out on me, and I'm just like, this is fucking ridiculous. Don't be stupid. 
And so meanwhile, you moved on, right? John, you, you found other people that you could work with, but we were one of the people you could have worked with originally in providing us information. Uh, of course, we would have had our own team verify it either way, but you then moved on. Yeah, as quickly as possible. We just wanted it all to be over with, right? Right. Get rid of all the get rid of all the bad companies. Let's go back to value investing. Right. So you worked with a couple of maybe more known short sellers in the space, uh, giving them ideas uh, that that they published. And I'm not gonna I'm not gonna put that out there. Whatever it was, whatever I think it was. Anyway, I don't. I'm not going to ask you to either, but at some point you started publishing on your own. Yeah. Um, it was just difficult dealing with people uh, who wanted to partner to expose different companies. There wasn't time. You know, there was a window of opportunity where all of a sudden we felt like people cared. Are the companies we're investing in legitimate? Mm-hmm. And we'd already done the research years years ago. Mm-hmm. Of course, they're not. They're scams. Here's the research. Mm-hmm. And so we felt like, let's just get it out there as fast as we can. Short this stock. Short that stock. As quick as we can. Expose all the frauds. And uh, clean, out, clean out the space. And uh, then there would be another uh, opportunity to be- go back to doing the, the old value investing. Um, right. We did it on our own using the Alfred Little pseudonym. Right. And I think the the one I remember was China Biofuel was like maybe the first one I remember. Yeah, China what was that thing called Biointegrated Energy. Right. 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 Where 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 I think that that made yeah, that was that was in a movie that cannot be mentioned. Uh and it was it was pretty infamous where, you know, investors are being dropped off on investor day where the where the actual facility is working. Uh, but every other day it's not working. Uh, and this is this is this is at a time where I, I mean, I think the very first at this was probably that I remember hearing about was a guy by the name of John Bird. You remember John Bird? Yeah, he, he went by Waldo Mushman <laughs> on the on the Yahoo message boards. He was Waldo Mushman. And, and meanwhile, this guy had like 500 million bucks, right? I mean, he was like, uh, uh, had a shit ton of fucking money in Texas, and he was in oil and gas. And I think he ended up hooking up with Sam uh, or investing in Sam's fund or something. But, you know, and Sam himself at Carisdale was really getting it done and just, you know, crashing companies. Um, ben Axler and uh, his partner were, were doing some as well. Uh, there was there was quite a bit of competition, and then there was Andrew Left, who was just like looking for. Andrew Left was probably the most financially prepared for this, right? Like, you know, he had a lot of money already relative to the rest of us. You know, in the probably eight figure range, where I I think he's maybe nine figures now, uh, and he was just calling everybody. Like, what do you know? What do you know? What do you know? He didn't have a team in China, right? But it didn't really fucking matter to him. He'd been sued many times before, and he'd already been down that road. So that he had no fear of that like some of the others did. Uh, and now I get it because, like, you know, getting sued's a Tuesday. But the first time, 
you know, when it's like a hundred million dollars, that was, that was sound of clean energy, right? That was with you. Uh, that was, that was not a good Tuesday. <laughs> I was, I was like, that's a bit more than I have. Um, so there were a lot of people out there doing it, but you were one of the first, uh, and, and then there was Sino Clean Energy, as I talked about. And then somehow you got involved in deer, which I had nothing to do with in the beginning. And that touched off like a war between you and Ben Way. Yeah. You're just going to go with Yup. That's all you can say with the <laughs> war between you and Ben Way. I mean, listen, I mean, fuck that guy. That's what it is. I mean,. What, what do you think he's going to make another fucking company. cartoon they're of you? Who cares? Blenders and toasters and ironing irons, and they're, but they're not. I mean, you, you go to their factory and it's not making much of anything. I don't really. I mean, we should. I don't really care about deer. I mean, like, I got in the second half of deer, right? Like, you, you went at him a second time after we had known each other. And, like, again, by the way, I didn't even know your real name for a year. I read your real name online. <laughs> Uh, and you never actually told me what your real name was. Uh, I just called you up and I'm like, are you Zane or are you John? <laughs> Seems like John's the guy that must be you. Uh, and then after that, you were taking your second bite of the apple with deer and you had lost part of your team through a different fight you were having and you needed some help. And that's when we jumped in the second half of deer and took them out, uh, along with some of the chickens taking out our cameras, right? Remember that's when the chicken pecked out the <laughs> the camera we had. Um, but what's I think interesting is the court battle. The court battle set precedent with deer, correct? That's right. So take us through that. Can you talk about that at all? Or is that not something you can talk about? I think it's fine. I mean, uh, and, uh, you know, they make this complaint that uh, the short seller made a false and misleading statements about their company, defamed their company. Mm -hmm. uh, of course, we said everything we said is true. We've been to your factory. We've filmed your factory. We're not you... producing very many blenders and toasters. Um, it was interesting because enough. because because uh, Alfred, uh, Andrew left had also published on deer in between your first and mm -hmm. second report that we helped you with. Yeah. And yeah, he we was part of a cabal together. Well, the, he was we were... begging them. He's like, fucking sue me. I dare you. I yes. remember Andrew left actually like publishing in writing. If you fucking sue me, I will tear your fucking face off Benway. <laughs> and, and, and Benway just like continued to go after you and did not go after Andrew. Yeah, left. He was smart. I'm not going to I'm not going to sue Andrew left. I'm going to sue John. <laughs> right. Right. Alfred yeah. Little. Yeah. Uh, Andrew had, had definitely like people had sued him in the past. California has different laws than New York, and they definitely have the anti slap statute down. And Andrew had won money with that before. So I think he's really trying to bait a uh, Benway and past that. How is the fight with Ben Way to begin with? It's supposed to be a deer, right? It's supposed to be the company and the CEO of the company. And where is this investor getting involved, paying for everything and, and pushing this lawsuit? That in and of itself well, is weird. 
I suspect that Ben still had a, and his sister still had a significant position in the shares of Deer. Oh no shit! So they still needed an exit, and right. we were denying them their exit. Right. Right. And how long did the suit go on for? That was the longest one. That was the first one. They were the first to sue, and uh, I think they were more or less the last to uh, settle. And that got to discovery, didn't it? You actually ended up going to court where this lawyer was slamming yeah. down complaints in front of you like a phone book yeah. and throwing yeah. things across was, the courtroom. I was deposed by their lawyer. Um, we went in front of a judge. The judge was ready to throw the complaint out. Hmm. And at the last minute, Deer's lawyer came and served right in front of the judge in the court with me there an amended complaint by throwing the complaint at me <laughs> professional just oh, that guy before, is just, if you can that. just imagine just before the judge says dismissed she's about to say dismissed this complaint is dismissed and someone comes in the courtroom and says your honor your honor we have a new amended complaint and throws it and it lands on the desk in front of me and my lawyer and she says you've been served okay the judge, break, the judge breaks out laughing because this is ridiculous right yeah but that was it was interesting think? like the judge didn't even like say you're in contempt or you know you know you need to calm down or whatever it was funny to the judge it was entertaining yeah absolutely in new york southern district supreme court this was the greatest entertainment of the week. You know, somebody <laughs> runs in, they're losing the case, and they're going to file a minute complaint at the last minute, and they have to serve them in a complaint before the original complaint gets dismissed. So they throw it at the defendant, John Carnes, and it lands on the desk of the defendant. And does that constitute service? And the judge is laughing. This is, you know, hilarious, right? You threw it, it hit him, it touched him. <laughs> um, <laughs> it touched them. Yeah, that's fantastic. Okay, I I think that constitutes service. This the amended complaint of Dear Consumer has been served upon the defendant, and that uh, could and that continued for both a while. Parties file, yeah, right. File your your uh, responses. Yeah, yeah. Read it and respond. You have sixty days. Yeah, yeah. I'm pretty fluent in the procedure these days. Complaint, response, amended complaint, amended response, and uh, there you go. So, do, do you think the continued failures of the suits makes companies more hesitant when when a report comes out to to actually file that suit, or or, or do they think they want to be that groundbreaker and and get the cabal? Groundbreaker. Uh. There's no groundbreaker part of it. And John, you can answer for your part, but for you know, my experience is the more fraudulent a company is, the more likely they are to sue. Because Yeah, yeah you, you agree, right, John? Yeah. The more uh, desperate they are. Right? Well, it's not even just like so much the desperation as as you know, the company's bullshit. They're they're caught, right? But they they don't have to pay for the lawsuit. It's that last fuck you to the shareholders 
the shareholders are paying for the lawsuit and they want to hassle us, right? So I'm paying for it, my insurance or whoever, if I had it, is paying for it. But a, but a company cannot commit fraud. It's impossible for a company to commit fraud. I've always said this, right? People commit fraud at a company. But the people who are committing the fraud at, at these companies are also directing the finances. And they can, they can initiate this lawsuit. And this happens, it's the same problem in China that we have here in the United States because there's a complete lack of corporate governance. There's no such thing as an independent board of director anymore. An independent board of director, they even just call them like a board of directors, right? They're independent board of director and they're supposed to work for the shareholder. And if there was any kind of semblance of corporate governance anymore, they'd say, fuck this lawsuit, bullshit. We're, we're gonna do an internal investigation and if you're as dirty as they say you are, we're gonna ring your ass up. But it doesn't happen because the, the job of an independent board of director anymore is to have three or four or five board chips paying you fifty to $250,000 a year to take a phone call every fucking quarter and, and then you get tens of millions of stock options and that's all you do. Like when's the last time a board of director had any kind of responsibility for fraud at a company, even going back to Enron, right? I mean, there's, there's an audit committee chair on the board of directors there. No, nothing. So it doesn't exist and the fraudulent companies will more likely sue. And you have to do this kind of, you know, ratio of is it worth it i mean john you've been you've been sued you've made a couple million dollars on a company been sued and spent it all right yes yeah i mean when's the last time there's actually ever been an, an external investigation the company always wants to say internally yeah. that there's been an internal investigation supported by external investigators which are given who, a, a, a very narrow set of parameters. What people don't even realize is that you, when you hire an external investigator, the company itself sets the parameters for what you can investigate. Very similar to what an auditor does. Right. What, and how the auditing process works. Right. The, they're, they're given parameters as well. Yeah, auditors are not, I mean, I, I've heard a million people say this, so I'm not coming up with anything original here, but like, they are not equipped, nor do they consider it their job to catch fraud. That's not their job. Right. So they're, they're auditing the statements of a company. And people still don't realize that the auditors don't write the 10Ks or the Qs, although I'm hearing more and more they do in China. I swear to God, like if the PCOB wants to reach out to me or the SEC, I can name a few companies and a few big four auditors that are actually helping write the K and the Q in China or they lose the business. So, but they're not supposed to do that. Yeah. Well, that's yeah. supposed to come from the company and then they audit that. Right. So I know that was a big, long answer to your question, Carl, but that's, you know, I mean, that's just something that fucking makes me nuts. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, the, sh the short answer basically is, at the expense of their own shareholders, they can give you a pain in the ass and an expensive one at that. 
and give themselves more time to get out of the stop. Right. Right. Do whatever means they're, they're in it. So Dan, uh, I feel like Carl had some more questions. You do. No, 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 that was, that was, that was spot on. So you don't, you don't really know Carl very well. (laughs) He's Carl is known as a one and done. Okay, thank you. Thank you. Yes. Okay, thank you. <laughs> yeah, like like the L and L call, John. Okay, thank you. <laughs> we'll get into Were that. Were you long L and L or short L and L? Which time? No, we. Two thousand ten. Uh, I don't know if if it was still long in two thousand ten, but in two thousand nine, definitely. That definitely like I met with the SEC when when we were I think you were there with me. Uh, we had to go meet with the SEC down in Washington, D.C., right uh, on L&L mm-hmm. because they had Dixon Lee was dumb enough to have a U.S. passport, which is why he went to jail and the only person to ever go to jail. But smart enough to have two former cabinet members on his board at L&L Energy. Right. Norm Mineta and Ed Moy. And by the way, wasn't that great when Zane went to Ed Moy's house for a clothing donation? <laughs> I forgot what the reason for that was, but Ed Moy actually answered the door and gave him a bag of clothes, right? Yeah. Yeah, that was crazy. Um, a great guy. He was, he, he was a nice guy, but like, the, you know, we sent them all of this information about L&L and they did nothing about it. And then the feds were investigating us uh, and the SEC. And we went down there and I, you know, I told the SEC, I mean, I've got Dixon Lee's phone number in my cell phone right now because we went and met with him in New York in 2009 twice. See, when you're investing in the company, the guy's got all the fucking time in the world for you, right? To tell you about he's buying this coking facility and this mine and that mine and, you know, how they're, they're doing this whole, you know, top to bottom linear approach to coal mining, uh, but when we went and found issues with L&L, and this is probably 2012 now, maybe 2013. No, 12 was the first time. Uh, I actually called the company, and I wanted to speak to Dixon Lee prior to publishing anything. I wanted to get, like, what was his take on this? He would not speak to us under any circumstances. And we had to deal with that other guy, Clayton Fong, I guess was his name. Yeah. Yeah. It was completely, you know, uh, useless. But and then and then again, the Mark Jensen cunt, which I'll only refer to you that way for now and forever, Mark, uh, would run interference for Dixon Lee. But, yeah, it was a pretty interesting time and a very stressful time because, you know, you didn't know the SEC's after you or who they're after. Uh, The SEC was easier. Well, they'll take you both. I mean, that's a great day for the SEC, right? People would always say to me, boy, this must be a great day for the SEC. You go down there with all this time-lapse surveillance and just a lock-solid case, and they really have nothing to prove because you've proved it all. And I say, no, that's a good day for the SEC. A great day for the SEC is when we've done all of that, and we made a mistake as well, and they get two cases for one because they don't give a fuck. They're, They're about keeping the market clean and... Anybody who makes a mistake, you're going to have to make recompense somehow for it. So they'll get you too. But having said that, 
we never went down there with a lawyer. We went unrepresented because and, and the SEC would just like they would be like, are you sure you don't want a lawyer? We're we'll like, I'm not paying eight hundred bucks an hour or a thousand dollars an hour to tell you the truth. I can do that without a fucking lawyer. And then we'd continue. And, you know, things have always worked out, you know, for us that way. Um, but, yeah, that was that was quite interesting, wasn't it? Absolutely. What was your reason for just like backing off, like just being done with the China short trade or short selling in general? You're just like, this is not for me anymore. It's just not economical and the, the human cost, mm. right? Which mm. I can't really get into no. with the human cost. Mm -hmm. I mean, the fact that there's people in China that if we raise enough hell with enough companies, people in some very dear friends of mine in China are going to end up in a lot of trouble. Right. That's it. That's the point where I just said, it's, it's not worth it. If idiots want to buy scam companies, so be it. Right. I can't, I can't stop them. Yeah. I just can't. If stop. I do try to stop them, some dear friends of mine are going to be in a lot of trouble. Okay. All right. Yeah. I know it's selfish, but I can't stop. I just can't do it. I've tried. It's, it's a difference between, you know, I want to be able to someday live in China again. I love China. In I that love Chinese people. In that magical but province I, in the West? Yeah. Right. I fell in love with Chengdu. You right. know? Right. I found Chinese people in, con in contradiction to Chinese companies that go public in the U.S. and scam American investors. I found Chinese people in general are honest. They are. And I found they Chinese, are. even Chinese bosses would admit to me the truth. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's a game, right? At the end of the day, it's a game. Like they're playing the game and the government sponsors the game of lying to American investors because it's not illegal to do so in China. But once you strike up a relationship with them, they become loyal and, and honest. And, you know, they want you to play the game with them if you'll do that. Uh, but the the difference is like what I found is doing diligence in China versus Japan or many places elsewhere. When you go and ask somebody, remember we, we kind of pioneered the the idea of speaking to the businesses around a factory or a facility uh, about that facility. And for for my part, I thought that made perfect sense because growing up in Flint from a General Motors hub and home, everybody around a General Motors plant that did business like a 7-Eleven or a convenience store, or a liquor store, you know, Coney Island restaurant, they knew more about what was going on in that fucking factory than the foreman because their livelihood depended on it. And the first time we did that was Sino Clean Energy. And we put that one line in our report that a shopkeeper said, blah, blah, blah. You know, this is how many employees work there or whatever. People went fucking nuts. They went apeshit. <laughs> the lawyers went nuts. The company went nuts. The auditors went nuts. They're like, how bad are these guys at what they're doing when they're talking to a company outside of a, I mean, a, a, a shop owner outside of a factory? Now they all do it. Now all the auditors do that in China because the people around that factory 
They don't know why you're asking them a question. So they just answer honestly. And that's what they do. They don't, that's how they are. Go ask somebody in Japan around a Nissan factory or something, a question. You will get shitola. They will not tell you anything. You are a foreigner. You don't speak their language. You're not, they will tell you nothing. But in China, they will have the most friendly conversation, especially if you speak the dialect there, right? They, they do know yeah. if you have an accent from northern China or southern or whatever. But they'll tell you everything. They're very honest people. John and Dan, where do you think that they learn learned the game? You know, to 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 do this type of fraud and, and at this type of level, they've been defrauding their own government since they for, forever. I mean, that's what John is saying too, right? When he was doing, I, mean, I want to answer for you, John. Yeah, I mean, you, this is about you, but like the literally, you have a different set of books for the Communist Party than you do for yourself, John. Yeah, and I'm going to say that the Communist Party. The Chinese authority has jailed, imprisoned more Chinese executives than the United States has. The United States has Dixon Lee, right? And right. Uh, China has imprisoned numerous Chinese fraudsters. I mean, if they committed fraud on a Chinese citizen, not an American citizen. Absolutely. Right. They're going to jail. When they get caught, they're going to jail. Well, they get the death penalty. Yeah. Or they're just disappearing, right? Like uh, the executives of yeah, iResearch, right? No, no, no. It's, it's, it's a thing. I, that was probably a few years into it before. Fab Universal. Right. Yeah, These a, a CEO can disappear. Mm -hmm. And that alarms really nobody there. They're just like, oh, yeah, okay. Yeah. Well, they're just like, well, I mean, you know, this happens from time to time. So, you know, We haven't heard from him it's in reasonable. a few days. It's, I, but I also argue it's reasonable. Fab Universal cheats some Chinese investors or partners, and Fab Universal's Chinese CEO goes to jail, right? Yeah, same thing with NQ. NQ's yeah. CEO disappeared for like sixty days or whatever. Although I don't think that was the government. I think that was people he owed money to in China. <laughs> but go ahead. Yeah. But it, you know, Dixon Lee cheats American investors. Dixon Lee goes to jail. He's an American. He goes to jail in America. Right, right. Well, the difference is though. In China, if if you steal from enough Chinese citizens and it's enough money, you can get the death penalty. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, look, this is great. Uh, Tick, you have any questions? No, I mean, I, I, w I was really fascinated, John, to, to hear how you got started. I had heard, you know, a lot of the stories. And I wondered, you know, why you kept pressing early on why you switched even even when you you were being threatened and uh, yeah i mean the truth is the truth is take we didn't think that the chinese authority really didn't think they gave a crap about frauds if a chinese company is a fraud we didn't think they gave it really cared if we exposed it to some foreign investors they we, didn't. Didn't, we didn't expect any retaliation if we exposed some nanocap company trying to scam some foreigners. And most times there wasn't. We, we were a little mistaken. That, yeah, no doubt. No doubt. And when that first happened, you know, what was what was that moment like where it was like, okay, we're we're being threatened. They know about us now. We can either stop or we can go forward. Why why go forward? 
Hmm. That's a really good question because we really seriously considered, should we just stop? And we thought, we really thought that these are bad guys. And we thought that the authority in China really wouldn't protect the bad guys. We thought as long as we continued to share the truth with the foreign investors, that we would be okay, that there wouldn't be any serious repercussion. Um, you know, we were maybe we were mistaken, but uh, you know, we thought we believe that the authority didn't really care that if we exposed some small companies' attempts to scam some foreign investors. Well, it turns out they did care, and that seems to have harmed us all. Um, I know you paid a terrible price, John. You and your team have paid a terrible price, but I would say American investors continue to pay as well. Let's hope at some point we can get it right. Let's stay after it, be vigilant, and call out the frauds where we see it. Uh, I thank you, John, for your time, your candor, uh, and the conversation. I'm glad to hear you're doing well. And uh, keep after them. Thanks. John, thank you. Anytime, guys. Thanks a lot, John. All right, folks, that's a wrap. Thanks for listening, and don't forget to subscribe at wolfpackresearch.com or with your podcasting service. And follow us on Twitter at Wolfpack Reports. That is Wolfpack Reports on Twitter. 